Turn in your Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 9. But before we uh, begin, I want to show a video. This is from Katie, an interview from, with Katie Nelson. Katie, a number of months ago, had a burden on her heart just to reach out to some of the people at the, at the college here in town. And I, th- I think it's self-explanatory, but it so fits with our text today that I want to play that interview here this morning. is Katie Nelson. Um, I've been married to my husband Mike for almost 22 years. Um, We have seven children. We have two grown boys who are 19 and 21. We have two daughters that are adopted and then we have three more little girls who have been a homeschooling mom um, for the last 20 years. We've been attending uh, the E-Free Church for uh, about three and a half years since we moved here. Um, We felt very welcome when we walked in and saw the Marianos and they have a also a blended family and so we just felt very comfortable and welcome. I was raised to be grew up both Mike and I grew up here in Grand Rapids. My family was always very involved in politics and service in the community. Um, very much a part of uh, my up- upbringing is um, serving and reaching out. Um, I became a Christian about five years into our marriage and I realized that um, there was nothing I could do to change my husband <laughs> um, and that I, I just said, God, if you're real, you fix him because I can't and, and he fixed me. When we first considered adopting, I was rather shocked to find out that it, uh, African-American children were harder to place. And I, you know, I said, those are the children that, that I, I want. You know, I, I think that's wrong and I want, you know, our, I think that's wrong. <laughs> and um, so many years later, when we did finally adopt, that's where um, we put ourselves in the programs for those children that were harder to place. And we um, adopted our daughter Amanda and then our daughter um, Anna. And through the adoption process, we learned about the kind of racism that they would experience in terms of being singled out, being different, being the only one with dark hair, dark eyes, dark skin. What I didn't know about was that there was still very overt racism that happened in terms of um, people who were hateful and hurtful and um, and, and um, spoke out with hatred. Um, this September I attended a speech at the Public Library by Samson Longton, um, addressing racism in the community, and I was shocked to learn that Grand Rapids has a reputation as being racist. The people that I know have been welcoming and loving to our family and encouraging and wonderful, and so I was surprised um, to hear that. So um, I just really began to um, seek out ways that, that the voice of love would be louder than the voice of hatred started just by approaching people and saying hello and asking their name and telling them my name. You know, questioning my own, why did I not make eye contact or why didn't I approach somebody or why didn't I say hi? And realizing my own um, racial biases and fears when approaching somebody new or somebody different. And so just started um, that way and started uh, approaching people at the college, um, knowing that there was a large population, most of the football team, all of the basketball team, you know, our, our minorities, started just by um, 
going out to the college one day with a stack of gift cards and tracking, you know, stopping kids in the hall and telling them we wanted to make sure that they felt welcome there. I would love to have somebody who is more organized than I am <laughs> help organize volunteers. I'm looking for families who would like to start um, becoming educated, understanding what they're going through, preparing their hearts to then reach out and have an opportunity. We want to get some kind of structure in place where there's families in the community that would sign up as host families, like a foreign exchange student, recognize that these kids are coming to a foreign culture and um, educating people about where they come from and understanding so that they can be understanding and compassionate um, is a key part of that. If every church had just a small group of families who were willing to reach out, who who really have a heart for the college student, who have college students themselves, who understand, you know, rough backgrounds. Um, that's ultimately my vision is that, you know, every church in, in this community to have an opportunity to reach out to this. Um, some kind of forgotten group of people that people maybe don't realize are struggling. You know, we have our homeless shelters and we have um, some of these different programs to help people but don't always think of college students because we sort of expect that they should have it all together and they're at college so they should, you know, just have think all their ducks in a row um, and that's really not the case. They really could use a lot more support at this stage in their life. I'm going to come back to that interview a little bit later in the text here this morning. But I want to set the context and the stage, really, for our passage this morning. I understand that this passage is about six, maybe seven, maybe eight months out from when Jesus goes, on, uh, goes to the cross. And, and there's a time where he is being much more intentional in pulling away from the crowds, pulling back from the crowds, because he wants to train his disciples. But let me ask you a question. If you knew that you had six months to live and that you were going to exit this world, what would those last months be like for you? Uh, I had a friend who knew that she was dying, and she created a bit of a bucket list and wanted to do some things in terms of go where, you know, where she went, and, and, and we can appreciate that, but understand that it's a little bit different for Jesus. Look at the passage, Mark 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now this would have been about the fall of AD 32. But catch this, there was no bucket list for Jesus. There was no, I'm going to climb that mountain before I leave. There was no Mediterranean cruise boat that he wanted to sail on. What he does is he pulls back and actually begins to invest more time and give more to this band of disciples that were following him. But the disciples didn't always catch what he was teaching. Matter of fact, 
I don't know if you caught this when we read this verse. In verse 30 it says, he's going to be delivered into the hands of, and it's referring to himself, they knew that, that he referred to himself as the son of man. But the idea that he's being delivered pointed to somebody delivering him. See, in many ways that was going right back to Judas. It was a signal to Judas even at that point. And I can't help but wonder if, if Judas already was beginning to disconnect from Jesus and saying, you know what, I'm not sure that I like this guy. Do you see what's happening here in the context? But the disciples just didn't understand. They were afraid to ask. And I, I keep thinking back a few chapters here when, when Peter, when Jesus told them about his impending death and, and, and Peter goes, no, we're not going to let you have it. We're not going to let you do that. And remember the phrase that Jesus spoke to Peter at the end. He said, get behind me, Satan. And I can't help but wonder if at that point the disciples goes, I don't know what we should ask of Jesus. But they were blinded still. They didn't understand as the text implies here. But there is a reminder, and I think an application in that for us today. If you're following along in the bulletin outline, I said it this way, the reminder. The human mind has an amazing ability for rejecting what it does not want to see. That was the disciples. But again, I think you fast forward to 2016. Isn't that true for us as well? We can hear the gospel. We can hear teaching about, about God and his word and what he desires for us. And yet we have such a difficult time giving our full allegiance to him, the one, the person that saved us. See, the reality of even in discipling people, there's this place where we can accept parts of it. I'm going to accept this part, but when it comes to this part, no. I think I'm just going to set it aside and ignore it. It's so easy to pick and choose, even within the scriptures, of what principles we can ignore and that which we hold tightly to. And I think this is really becoming pervasive when you think of the blindness and the illogical thinking of people. Uh, last weekend, I got to dedicate my granddaughter, new granddaughter, out in the Sacramento area. And I was holding her for the first time uh, that weekend. And, and the irony of it is, as I thought that okay, here was this small, you know, she's only six pounds in range yet, and, and she's small. But if you were to back up one month where she was still in the room, people would label her as a fetus. And I go, how can you believe those contradictions? It's a person here and it's a non-person here. Do you see the capacity that we have to blind ourselves to what is real and what is true? And I think we can do that as Christians as well. We just have to admit that. But we come to another section here today as well. And I want to begin this by putting a couple symbols on the screen here. Let me put the first one. What's this? Nike. Nike is the number one athletic shoe selling company in the world. Largest maker and seller of athletic shoes. Let me put the next one. What's this? Apple. Apple sells more iPhone or more phones than any company in the world. They're number one. How many own an iPhone here? Okay, look at this. 
Now, I, I keep telling my son, he's an apple guy, I keep telling him, this is actually the apple represented in the garden. <laughs> okay, so the next time you go to buy a new phone, you understand, stay away from Satan's phone and, and get, go toward a droid. Okay. Next symbol. This is not Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay. American Airlines. The top airline company in the world, number one, in terms of planes and flights. But see, the challenge is, who doesn't want to be number one? Grand Rapids finished, what was it, third or something here the, the, uh, at the hockey tournament. Wouldn't we rather have had them come back and everybody can point, we're number one? You go to, some of you have kids in sports and you go, who doesn't want to finish first and be number one at a tournament? Isn't becoming number one a part of the American dream? Well, let me dig into the text today. Look what it reads. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way as they were walking? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So picture this. They're walking toward the city of Capernaum. And we can assume then that Jesus wasn't always connected to these twelve in that journey. So they were probably back or in front, and they were having conversations apart from the ears of Jesus. And then when it says this phrase, they were discussing. Uh, the, the technical word is reasoning there, but it's a very strong word. It means that this, they were debating. This was a spirited debate. And they were debating as to who was number one. And Jesus, again, remember, had just talked to them about the resurrection and his death and what was the happening as he was looking forward. But why were they arguing about number one? See, I think this. Somehow, they, had, they kept believing that Jesus was there to set up an earthly kingdom. What they couldn't get is that Jesus was talking about a spiritual kingdom, a spiritual reality. See, it really shows how far the disciples are from understanding the purpose even of the cross. They couldn't get that it was a spiritual kingdom. Even with the death and resurrection, they're still thinking, yeah, if he, if he rises again, he's still going to create an earthly kingdom. See, assuming that Jesus then would rule in that kingdom. But just think of the transfiguration a while back. Peter, James, and John going up on that mountain, they experienced something that the other nine did not experience. And I think, I suspect, that it would add a little bit to being puffed up for them. I went up on the mountain with Jesus, talked to God, heard God. But just think of that group along the way arguing who is going to be the greatest. I think of a Peter. Peter's pretty impulsive. I think maybe it could have gone something like this. You know what, Jesus, he's going to give me, I'm going to be able to rule Jerusalem, the great city. I'm going to be in charge. 
Is that what he was thinking? Or, or maybe James said this, you know what, I'm, the kind of, I'm a teaching guy, a learning guy. I'm going to be in charge of all the great teaching within this kingdom. Or, or maybe Matthew said this, I'm the numbers guy. Remember, I worked for the IRS before. I can collect money. I'm going to be the secretary treasurer of this kingdom. See, somehow they were arguing about positions of authority and structures that they wanted, where they wanted to be and who would need to be number one. Now, I've got to remind you of something here. This wasn't the first time they argued about who's great, and it wouldn't be the last. Because if you fast forward those six, seven months, do you realize the night before he goes to the cross, he gets arrested, they're arguing again in Luke 22. It, it shares that with us. They struggled with this idea of wanting to be great and known by other people as great. Let me give you the point here, though, for this morning, the application here. Number one in the notes, I said this way, the world wants us to believe that being number one is where true meaning is found. See, the goal of the lives, the world tells us this, power, esteem, fame, lots of money, that's where... Your identity is to be found. Now, I, I got to point one nuance here, but because this, ambition to something is not wrong. The ambition to be great and number one in the world's standards, that's what Satan wants. But there's another healthy ambition in another direction as well for us. And I think this temp there's this temptation of where your ambition is being directed. I, I think of the temptation even of Jesus. Remember when he was tempted in the desert, Satan came to him and said, here's a, here's a stone, turn it into food. You know what? Feed the pleasures of the body. And remember, Satan then took him up on top of a mountain and he goes up there and he looks over all the kingdoms and he says this, you know what? I, can, I will give you all the authority and then he uses this phrase, and splendor. Jesus, you can be number one. You can be admired if you just bow down and worship me. See, the esteem of winning, the esteem that we are the biggest, the best, the most beautiful, that we can beat every other team, that I'm the best hockey player, basketball player, the best preacher, the salesperson, the best writer, the best mom, the best dad, or even a best church, all can be an illusion. Feeding into something that is that God never intended, that just fuels the flesh of where meaning is found. See, these disciples, they wanted to feel important. And it was less about Christ and more what other people, how they viewed them. And it's true. We want approval. We want an admiration of others. That's a part of the flesh. But I suspect that when Jesus asked that question, what are you guys talking about? I'm guessing then their eyes just went down or to the side that they wouldn't have wanted to make eye contact with him. See, they had just gotten caught. They had gotten caught living by the world's rules, living by the world's economy, proclaiming that number one is about what people think of me. And in one sense, I think it's heartbreaking that here they had just talked about 
He's going to the cross. He's going to die. And they're sitting and arguing about who is first. But let me keep going. Look at verse 35. He continues, and he sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and the servant of all. So he calls them to sit down. The fact that he writes sit down implies that he's taking the place of a rabbi here. A rabbi would sit and teach. Okay, And, and so it's a very formal lesson that he's giving here. But there's, I think there's really two aspects to this lesson. First, he wants them to know something different. That there's, a, there's an intellectual understanding of what it means to be great. But the second one, I think this, he wants them to live differently. To live in a different way. To function different, differently in life. See, the challenge is for us is that knowledge without application is not discipleship. Knowing biblical facts about the scriptures doesn't mean that one will follow Christ. People can go to wonderful Bible studies, they can learn the deep truths of the scriptures, but if there is no action, it's really useless. Let me give you the second point, though, number two. Jesus desires that his disciples live a lifestyle of serving. See, he's communicating, guys, you want to be great? It begins by serving. It's not about by being served. This was a leadership lesson for them, and it was a disciple-making lesson as well. But he's teaching about the battle between the ways of the world and what the kingdom looks like. He's saying, you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Serve. Become last. Don't worry about being masters and rulers, but be a servant of all. But understand, he didn't dismiss ambition and working hard that way. He changed the focus of it. Instead of ruling, be number one, work hard at serving the kingdom and serving others that need it. See, desires are legitimate. But which way are we pulling? Is our ambition toward being what the world defines in terms of our meaning? Or as it says, we follow Jesus and says our ambition needs to be serving Him and the kingdom of God. But he, he didn't end there. He ended up giving an illustration, an object lesson. Look at verse 36. And he took a child And he put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So the picture, Jesus is kind of holding this little child. And he's giving an object lesson, and he's giving some nuances here to what this really looks like in terms of serving. See, he understood the hearts of those guys. But we need to catch this, that very subtly, he's talking about the motives of why we serve. And at times, we have to admit that we can serve people and have suspect motives. See, the reality, if pride is in the heart, people can serve to get something. Esteem, praise, favor from people. 
And I would define that as suspect serving, is when we're looking to get something from it ourselves. And that's why the illustration here is with this little child. So he takes this little child in his arms. Whoever receives and understand receives, who opens your life up to one of these. Now understand these is not just specifically children. It can include adults. But think of the illustration of a child. A child really doesn't influence people. Except you've got to change their diaper. You've got to do that. Deanna did a lot of that last weekend. But a child can't advance your career, enhance your prestige. A child can't give us a lot of things and, and make us feel important. A child is needy and needs things, needs to be served. A child must have things done for him or her. But another way to say it would be this, of what he's, what he's talking about. If a man welcomes the poor, welcomes the ordinary people, serves and welcomes people who have no influence, no wealth, no power, the people who need things, needs help, he is welcoming, welcoming me. And, did you catch that at the end of that phrase, he's also welcoming God, his Father, the one who sent me, you're serving me and him. See, serving is called to be unconditional serving, based on not who they are or what they have. It's because there's lack in some way. You understand, Katie Nelson went to that college and, and she was just looking to serve to make a difference that, that somebody would feel loved. She wasn't expecting anything out of it. And she ministered and she cared in Jesus' name. But I got to point out a nuance here to serving, just a reminder of a couple of things. The first one there in your notes God uses serving to transform our hearts. See, he's calling us to serve with humility, with a servant's heart. He wants it to be a lifestyle. This was a part of the discipleship plan, by the way, for, that he had with the disciples. But the challenge is, is that at times the church becomes a place where we get served. People are to meet my needs, my desires. I want my music, my stuff, my whatever. And the challenge is, is that God comes to a place in our lives where he goes, you got to start serving because it, I want to use serving in your spiritual formation. And, and people don't realize that it's absolutely critical to go to a place of becoming other-centered. And we do this by serving. See, at times I think people think that spiritual growth is only about learning, and that's just not true at all. And I think there's a deception for many people in their minds. But let me give you another reminder here. At the center of serving is humility, and it's not about convenience. You know what? Taking care and accepting children and their needs is not usually done on our time frame, is it? But here's where I think we want to go. You know, okay, God, you tell me that I'm going to serve. You know what? I got 10 minutes. I got 10 minutes on Monday night from 9 to 
I think I'll give you that time. And you go, no, that's not what he's talking about here in this illustration. This is about a lifestyle of recognizing, of coming to a place where through humility, we're looking out for the interests of other people. And it's ongoing in our lives every moment. And it's about doing that in Jesus' name. And I think, I'll go back to what I said earlier, I think there's a challenge because we think that we're growing and maturing, but if we're unwilling to serve the kingdom and be committed to that lifestyle of that, you're going to plateau. There's going to be a plateau of growth that you'll never get past. See, God is calling us to something different and profound. Matter of fact, I want to show you Philippians 2. The ultimate example of servants, of a servant's heart, it's Christ. Look at what it says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do you see the deep call to be other-centered, and you cannot help but serving when that takes place. But we don't look to cultivate friendships and serving just to those who give things to us, who can influence us in some way in a positive sense. See, Jesus is our example of what greatness really means. But there's another lesson here in the text that i got to hit here before we end. Look at verse 38. It feels like John is trying to change the subject here. Look what he says. John said to him, Teacher, We saw someone casting out demons in your name. And you could put in serving there. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Let me give you the point right up front right away, what I think it's, this is about. Number three, beware of self-righteousness in observing what other people's service for Christ, what that looks like. This is a very subtle lesson but it's driving home the issue of humility for these disciples. See, John raises his hand and he's saying this, Jesus, those people, they're casting out demons over there in in your name, but they're not one of us. They're not doing it right. They're not connected to you. Do you see the tension there? Well, let me give you a very pointed quote. This one impacted me deeply this week from a commentary that I used. Look what it says. This brief incident stands as a firm rebuke to the spirit of sectarianism, meaning to be separate and thinking we're better. It condemns that exclusive attitude which insists that only those who carry on their work in harmony with Our own views and practices can be accepted as really doing God's work. 
Do you understand the exclusive, being exclusive there? If they demonstrate that they are on God's side in the war of Satan, even though their views may be imperfect, they must not be condemned for such work. I came across this, I think it was on Wednesday this week. And, and you know what? I have to admit that I was guilty of this attitude last weekend. In visiting um, out there, the, the dedication of my granddaughter uh, was at the church of my son's, my, my son-in-law's father is a pastor there. He just started about six months ago. And he's just getting, he's 50 and he's just getting started in the ministry as a, as a profession paid uh, position. But I was, we had lunch with them after the service, after the dedication. And, and I happened to ask about a particular church. So there's a large church in Northern California in the Reading area. And it's, it influences a lot of people. And I just asked if it hasn't, it's, if it's influenced the Sacramento area. Um, that particular church... Um, has, has a really a phenomenal worship and music ministry. Matter of fact, we sing some of their songs, okay? But the challenge for me and, and where I was struggling is because this church ha- has some really suspect theology and, and some kind of weird stuff, but the conviction on Wednesday was, okay, even if they're wrong, They're not doing it. They're not in the right group of theology. In theology, I am called to a humility and believe that God can still use them for His glory. If God wants to reward them, even with what I would consider poor theology, so be it. See, that's in God's hands whether He's going to be reward whether they'll be rewarded or not. Now, the good news is that. You know what? God forgives my self-righteousness and our self-righteousness. And they realize he's not done with us yet. But see, the challenge is, are we moving toward that place of humility going, do we trust God in so many different ways? But what he calls us is just to jump in with humility and begin to serve and to serve the kingdom of God. And we need to have a healthy ambition to do that. But it's not for the benefit of ourselves. But here's where I want to end. I'm going to ask the guys that are going to serve communion to come on up. And I just want to put up Philippians 2. Again, this is the premium picture of who models this kind of service, this kind of humility. This is of Christ. It's such a great passage. Look how it reads. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death on a point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here is the absolute picture 
of Jesus coming, becoming a man, humbling himself, putting aside his godhood, becoming a man, and then dying for us. The ultimate act of service. He died for us. And that's what we celebrate actually today. We remember that Jesus was the servant. He served us. And because of that, we're free. We're free to love. We're free from condemnation. We're free to serve out of a pure heart, out of a love for God. Guys, would you hand out the bread? If you're new here, we practice open communion. You're invited to take it and participate with us. But I would ask that you would just hold the bread, that we would take that together, that we would just be reminded of our unity in Christ because of Christ we are one together. But just remember, ponder the servanthood of God, of his Son.